I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their fingers on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 108. Now, this episode is going to be a little different than normal. This past week, Mark and I went out to New Orleans and spoke to a group of students at Tulane University who were either going through the Freeman School of Business or, I guess more specifically, getting their master's in management uh, in energy. Um, so this is the first of about a dozen talks we'll be doing at universities across the U.S. and Canada this calendar year. Um, so this is my first time in New Orleans, and I really wish I could have stayed longer than one night. Uh, from what I could tell, it was uh, definitely a, a fascinating city. Uh, the campus was absolutely beautiful. Uh, the architecture there was so much different than uh, what we're accustomed to here in Houston. And uh, to top it off, the, the food was wonderful. So really enjoyed that. Uh, before we get to this week's show... Um, we've got OTC coming up in a few weeks, um, so we're going to be recording live from the Red Wing booth, and then we're also going to be recording live from the NOV Shrimp Boil. Okay, uh, Paige will also be launching the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast live from OTC. Uh, remember, while at OTC, we've talked about it a few times, the Rice Alliance is having their startup roundup event. They're not paying me to say that. I just think it's a wonderful thing to go to. Uh, go check it out and see some innovating startups um, in this space. Uh, you can go to their website to find more information about that. Um, so this week, rather than speaking on something that we wanted to, to talk about ourselves, we wanted to kind of take more of an interactive Q&A type talk uh, where we could kind of take more of impromptu questions from the audience and attempt to answer them uh, as best as we could. Um, I apologize for the audio quality. I know it's kind of hard to hear, uh, especially some of the questions in so certain areas of the audio, um, but hopefully the answers make up for it. So without further ado, enjoy. Uh, so good afternoon, everybody. So uh, we're happy to be here. Um, big shout out to Adam for actually pestering us, tracking us down, spending the time, coordinating everything. He went and played traffic cop because we like circled the wrong, you know, we could see the building, but there were so many one-way streets we couldn't figure out how to actually get here. So big, big you know, round of applause for Adam for pulling this thing together. And so how many of y'all know who we are? Cool. Yeah, so we have the uh, Oil and Gas This Week podcast, um, which is the number one podcast in the oil and gas industry globally, which sounds very impressive, except I think there's only five of us doing it, so it's very easy to be number one. Um, and we have actually the number two podcast. And we're launching a third one, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, from the floor of OTC. So we're looking forward to doing this, and we're looking forward to doing more of this sort of stuff. So the kind of cool thing about Louisiana is it um, has an oil and gas culture. And so a lot of y'all, if y'all are from the area, um, know about oil and gas, know that oil and gas companies tend to be good companies to work for. They take care of their people. But a lot of your peers across the country don't know that. And so we're out, we, all of our podcasts have a bit of a mench, mench, mission uh, to interface with our young people to help them understand how great an industry this is to, to go work for. So um, I'm actually from Louisiana. I'm from North Louisiana, which is Baton Rouge, a uh, little town called Zachary. Um, I actually lived in Mandeville for three years, worked in here in Metairie, so I'm very familiar with the area. Um, what we're going to do is make this a very informal type of uh, discussion. Um, we actually are going to take our first Friday Q&A and actually do that type of format because what we want to understand is how can we help you? You know, what questions are in your heads? What things are you worried about? 
You know, is there ways that we can add value to your life? So, you know, I want to start. Does anybody out there have any questions? Anything they'd like us to talk about? Yes, sir. So, in general, I feel like the general consensus is that oil and gas is kind of going to, well, at least like the demand is going to decrease over the next 20 to 30 years. I, I don't know if this, no one really knows how much necessarily, but like I, I think that most people are concerned about entering the industry seeing it as a dying industry. Yeah, and so that's, there, there's, we get that a lot. There's some perception around that. What you have to understand is the reality. So, every year, um, the demand for oil and gas goes up. Now, what's happening here and in Europe is that we're using less and less oil and gas for fuel and more and more to make products. I would venture to say that 80, 85% of the stuff in this room is based on hydrocarbons, would not exist. Everything from the adhesive holding the laminates together to the uh, polyethylene that makes the carpet, the plastics in your cell phone, all that comes from oil and gas. And that demand is rising. So. Um, the industry is going to change, and it's actually fundamentally changing right now under our feet. It's actually changing for the better. Um, and, and we have the kind of the perfect storm. How are we on time, Adam? How much time? I, I could spend three hours talking about this. Okay. Well, I, I want to just not to have a conversation. I mean, I like you and everything, but get the other people as well. Um, but so what's happening to the industry as a whole is, is, is fundamentally being forced to change. So I've been in this industry for 20 years, and this industry – tends to be risk adverse, which from the outside comes across as old fashioned. And but what it is in our industry, if if somebody in the industry makes a mistake, people die. And so because of that, once we have a process in place and whether that's how we semen a well or how we do uh, analytics or how we do accounts receivable, and nothing blows up and nothing leaks, nobody wants to change the process. One of the fundamental things that's changing is that and I got to be real careful because I keep saying the old guys in oil and gas. I'm now that age of the old guys. I quit saying old guys. Um, but that old guy generation who passed on that culture of being risk adverse is gone. They've left the industry and they're not coming back. This is my fourth downturn. It's one of the fundamental differences between this downturn and the rest of them is the, the senior people aren't coming back. It does two things. It creates a knowledge transfer gap. So your generation's coming in to have less mentoring in the industry, right? You go work for Chevron or Halliburton or Anadarko, whatever. Traditionally, the older guys keep you from screwing up, whether you're a sales guy or a project manager or an engineer or a accounts receivable person. Y'all aren't going to have that, which is kind of scary. But the flip side of it is y'all not bringing in this culture. That, that culture risk aversion is not being passed on. So when you come into our industry, and if you're a finance person, and you look at Exxon running multi-billion-dollar-year projects in Microsoft Excel, you're going to go, why are we using Microsoft Excel? There's so much better tools. So y'all will be able to implement change in our industry, which is sorely needed. Um, eventually getting back to your question. So we're in a long-term hydrocarbon abundant world. It's the, uh, oil and gas is everywhere. It's cheap. Um, because of that, because of this knowledge transfer gap, because the low cost of new technologies that are coming in, the industry is changing. There will always be a need for oil and gas, always. Um, like I said, the use of oil and gas to make products is on the rise here in Europe. And the developing countries, um, to, in order to be able to bring their population out of poverty, they're going to have to they need electricity. And one of the most efficient ways to produce electricity that's environmentally friendly is with natural gas. Look what's going on in Mexico. Central and South America is a ton of opportunity for oil and gas industry in the future. They need to bring their population out of poverty, but they don't have enough electricity to do that. Um, Mexico has a ton of natural gas they can't tap into. They don't, they don't have the technology to pull it off the ground. So what's going on in Texas? We're building gas pipelines like crazy, and we're selling gas from the fields in Texas. So to answer your question, there is no shortage. Uh, there, will, there will not be a shortage of 
need for oil and gas. The demand goes up every year. It's just what we use it for changes. Does that, does that help? Is that for you to be scared of? I promise. All right. Good question. What's your name? Yeah, thank Daniel. Good question. What else? Yes, sir. This is Jake's. This is Jake's world. This is my world. This is what I love to talk about. Uh, so I actually co-founded a company in oil and gas four years ago. Before that, I had zero exposure to oil and gas. Um, I was just a computer science major. The opportunity presented itself, and we built an analytics platform for oil and gas operators. Okay, so. Like Mark said, all of these guys are using spreadsheets and emails to communicate, to look at data. They've got billions of data points that they collect every day, and they have no way to actually extract information from all the data. So it's a huge opportunity. Uh, I left that startup in August, started another one. Uh, it's called WellHub. Uh, pretty much the same thing, a little bit of a different platform. There's a huge opportunity in that space because there are more legacy products that have been around for 20, 25 years you look at them it's very obvious um, and oil and gas is very 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 hard to break into um, but if you can learn the culture uh, and I think Mark was very instrumental in that I met him very early on uh, coming into oil and gas and just learning that it's more of an old boys network and it's really who you know and it's how you conduct business in oil and gas you can actually kind of break through yeah, and, and let me that's but that's changing too because the people that had that old boys old guys network are gone one of the things i, I love about our industry 60 percent of our new hires are women i just think that's awesome because what happened 15 years ago exxon mobile couldn't hire enough engineers and back then all the engineers were men and so exxon goes well i guess we have to hire a woman engineer and they did and she did a damn good job and exxon goes okay let's hire a bunch of women engineers and so i saw that culture shift literally overnight um because of, of things like that, because of all the young people coming in the industry, because of the need for new technologies to keep prices low, because there's so many technologies that these companies can't get their hands around, big data analytics, machine learning, Internet of Things, cognitive. If you think um, about it this way, it's anything that drives efficiencies for the actual operators. Yeah. So my world is definitely upstream. Mark can speak more to like midstream and downstream. Um, but we're, when we're at what, $50, $55 oil right now, they were used to 100 to $120 a barrel, so nobody really cared about efficiencies. Everybody was making money regardless. And so if you can find more ways to drive efficiencies at the drill bit, at the pad, in the back office, uh, or just in your general processes. it's so, so there's a lot more opportunities for startups now than I've ever seen before. In fact, I've never seen so many startups in this industry actually enter it than I have in the last 20 years. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, there's a bunch of companies. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of companies in the space. There's a lot of companies that are getting a lot of funding. Um, like during this summer, we'll probably do our seed round. We'll raise a million dollars, and people won't bat an eye at that. It's really easy. Yeah, and we talked just recently about the number of venture capital funds uh, in oil and gas. One of our past shows, it's like yeah, I, I put I put together a list of uh, just venture capital funds that are looking at investing in oil and gas, and I think it was between 35 and 50, and they're looking very very heavily in that space. So if it's not s something that's software, it's going to be something that's going to be downhole, um, something to either drill faster or drill more safe or extract more oil, anything. Like and, that. and the same thing's going on in midstream, downstream, and service companies. Um, one of the things that kind of lets you know how important this is is all of the majors, uh, Chevron, BP, Total, Exxon, um, Shell, Chevron, 
Yeah, that's it, all five. They all have internal venture capital groups because they know the next thing that they need is not going to come from Microsoft or IBM or SAP. It's going to come from some little two-man shop, some little small company that's going to give them a competitive edge. So the fact they have internal venture capital groups that are, that are tasked with going out in the world and looking for these entrepreneurs and startups tells you how important it is to them. So it's a good place to be. Now, you're in a competitive environment, right? You have to actually solve a business problem in a way that makes sense, but it's a good, good time for an entrepreneur in oil and gas. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, you mentioned it earlier, but the oil and gas historically, the mentality is a very, very rough culture to be in, right? And, uh, driving change is very difficult. What do you see as now, like, the keys to driving this culture change? Yeah, so I think the biggest key, and Jake, you can jump in here, is we're in this, like, long-term hydrocarbon abundant world. Uh, these shell plays that are, are in North America that we've tapped into, that geology is not unique. That geology is all over the world. It's just the rest of the world doesn't have our infrastructure or knowledge uh, to be able to get that oil and gas out of the ground profitably. They will. It's starting to happen right now. It's one of our predictions for 2017 is unconventional to go global. And that's not to mention all the different well stimulation techniques, which allows us to go back to all these capped wells all over the world and go back, go back into production. So um, now I've completely lost track of your original question. I was saying, how do you, how do you go about driving that? Oh, so it, that used to be a really hard thing to do. Because of the efficiencies that need it and because of the great crew change where all the old guys like me have left and all the young people like you are coming in, driving that change um, has actually gotten much easier. Now, this is still, because of what we do, a risk-adverse injury industry. Um, but I've seen companies move more nimbly than I've ever seen them before. Um, now, if you work for a big company, whether it's in oil and gas or in tech or retail, it's still a big company. It's still a slow-moving ship. It's one of the things I mentor a lot of young people. It's one of the things I let them know up front that you will see inefficiencies. You will see business processes that are broken in these companies, and you will want to fix it because you can. It's okay. It may take you a year. right? It, I mean, even though it makes perfect business sense, so you just have, to have the patience to do that. Um, but but the, the industry as a whole has figured out that it needs to change much quicker than it has, and it's, and it's getting there. We're not there yet. Um, all my friends tell me I'm crazy. But when I look at what's going on in our industry and I look out, say, 20 years down the road, I think 20 years from now, oil and gas industries will look like Silicon Valley. It's going to be sexy. It's going to be fast. Um, we're starting to figure out how to do social media properly. So all these misconceptions out there will be gone by, by the very nature of the changes. We have this very flexible workforce. There's not enough engineers coming to this industry. There's not enough project managers. There's not enough data scientists, mathematicians. So the old way was that you went and worked for Chevron as a mechanical engineer and you worked your 20 or 30 years. I don't think that's going to happen 20 years from now. I think 20 years from now, you could be an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and you'll spend some time working on Chevron's project, Anadarko's project, Statoil's projects. That very flexible workforce is a must-do because we don't have enough labor in this industry. Both um, skilled labor, such as pipe fitters, machiners, welders, scaffolding builders, and management and, and you know professional. There's just not enough people coming in. So I, that, that culture of not wanting to change is rapidly disappearing, which, thank God, it has. We had a question. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Jake. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your perceived differences of being an entrepreneur in this industry as opposed to other industries. So I feel like in this industry, it's it's wide open. Okay, and I say that for a reason, just because like Mark was talking about, it's a bunch of older guys, um, and I've worked with a lot of them, especially engineers. They always think they're right. They they've been doing things the same way for 50 years. Um, they barely know how to use a computer. They don't even have smartphones. Um, so there's a lot of ways that technology can come in and Im drastically improve uh, processes that are now manual, and we can completely automate those. Um, 
from what I hear, I've never worked in the medical industry, but I hear it was similar probably about 10 years ago. Uh, and I think oil and gas is kind of making that same transition that the medical industry did. Um, so I kind of feel like a, almost like a wildcat or like an old back, back in the day. Um, th there's so much opportunity uh, just to fix very, very, what, what I think are very, very basic problems. But I think people are intimidated by the image of oil and gas. You know, you're looking at some of the world's largest companies are oil and gas companies. And that it's, the problem is so large that you just can't overcome it. And I don't think that's the case at all. Did that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, so I had a chance to sit down with the head of innovation at TransOcean. We actually uh, interviewed him for one of our HSNE podcasts. And him and I geeked out um, because he actually got started his career in automotive. And he moved over to oil and gas about seven years ago. And we both started talking about all the opportunities we see for change in this industry, for new technologies, new process. And it's hundreds of thousands. Like the, our industry has been old-fashioned for so long that we have all these opportunities to bring in new stuff in. And finally, the business itself is, understands they need to do it. So it's actually really an exciting time for entrepreneurs. I mean, it's more exciting to know that you can come in and make a big difference rather than go into an industry where everything's already where it needs to be and you're just waiting for new technologies to be developed. Awesome question. Sounds like we've got a bunch of future entrepreneurs in this room. Yes, sir. If you see fracking um, going worldwide, do you think that's going to uh, put an end to uh, deep ocean? Yes. So, and, and there's a bunch of variables here. So, one of the things you have to understand is there's different types of crudes, and the U.S. is one of the few companies, companies, one of the few countries um, that can refine the heavy technical crudes. We get a much better yield. Um, so our refiners have a, a love that sort of stuff, and that stuff comes from Canada, Venezuela, the Middle East. Um, the crudes that we produce here, the lighter, sweeter crudes, are much easier, much less technology challenging to refine. So Central and South America, Europe, places where they don't have the advanced refiners have love that crude. So it just makes business sense to sell that to places that buy it and let us buy the heavy crude. And since we've lifted the export ban, we can. The problem is, though, ultimately expensive oil is dead. So high pressure, high temperature, ultra deep water, North Sea, oil sands, it's just it's too expensive. When the prices come down, it will come back. Um, now, I say all that, and I don't want to get in politics, but there is this little um, possibility here. So it looks like our current administration is talking about taxing imported crude. Well, our refineries love that imported crude. So what happens if we put a tax on it? There's a couple of scenarios I see. One is the refineries will retrofit to refine the sweet crude. The problem with that is a refinery is a money-making machine that runs 24-7, 365 days a year. Even when they have to do planned maintenance and repair, they only take parts of it offline at a time. So in order to retrofit it, they have to shut it down, where there's a bunch of money being lost right there, and then the billions of dollars of CapEx funds to actually retrofit the refinery. So that's one option. The other option that nobody is talking about now, there's another source of that heavy crude that we like, and that's Deepwater Gulf of Mexico. It could bring back Deepwater Gulf of Mexico with a bang. Like, like literally to the point that the subsea manufacturers can't keep up. Like we, we're not going to be able to, the drill ships, the deep water drill ships will be all gone, right? Be all locked up. So got to keep an eye on that. But overall, just expect expensive oil to be dead. Now, I say that when the technology gets to the point where the Parker drilling ship is totally autonomous and it drives out the deep water gulfs of Mexico and without making a single mistake, punches a vertical in the ground, um, goes ahead and completes that well, the robots build a subsea pipeline, once again, without a single mistake. Now, all of a sudden, that, that deep water oil gets inexpensive. 
Um, and that's in our future. Uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but definitely in y'all's lifetime. So it will come back. Same with oil sands. Somebody comes out with a cheaper way to get that oil out of the ground, it's a very valuable oil because it's heavy, and, and that will come back as well. Good question. Yes, sir. Um, so I really have a question so much as uh, I read this interesting article in the journal this week about how Pettit Basin left the default on the loans, and then they were able to make a $2.1 billion payment yesterday, I think so, $1.5 billion payment from Rosneft. Essentially, Russia is paying off financing Venezuela's loans right now, and Venezuela put up Citgo as collateral. Right. So, so we predicted this back. We talked about this back in I think 2015 that this low crude price environment, the Venezuelan people are going to overthrow the government because it's horrible over there. They literally are trading crude oil for rice and beans to try to feed their people, and they can't get enough rice and beans to feed their people. I mean, it's it's horrible over there. Um, this whole Russian thing. I, I mean, there's so many moving parts here. In, in some ways, we're in a we're not in some ways. We are in a competitive market with Russia, right? Russia's the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. Uh, uh, OPEC is second, right? We have the ability to outrank both of them. Um, and so you have that competition going on. Uh, the whole Citgo thing, I know Citgo very well. It's it's miserable since um, Petrovesa bought them. Literally, if you're a, a manager at Citgo and you have a budget this year for 2017 and you have plans to do a refinery upgrade or hire some more people, all of a sudden money's gone, right? So Petrovesa just pulled it out your budget. And so the best thing that happened for Citgo and its people is to be sold to somebody. And if you know Citgo management, they'll tell you they can't wait to get away from Petrovesa. Uh, Petrovesa bought them to try to be able to sell their oil into the U.S. market, which was a smart move at the time. Then we had some government sanctions come in, which stopped all of that. So they just kind of hanging. Russia's already in the U.S. market with Lukoil, right? Um, both retail and with refineries. And and we're in Russia. I mean, ExxonMobil and, and everybody else is over there. So. The thing about oil and gas that a lot of people don't understand, it's one of the few truly global commodities, and the risk and the cost of getting out the ground in certain fields is so expensive that it just makes sense to have joint ventures between big companies so you mitigate that risk. So don't believe any of the conspi conspiracy theories around that. Um, there's probably some other conspiracy theories around Russia maybe you should pay more attention to, but not, not the subject for this talk. Good question. Yes, sir. Midstream companies have been, if you notice, have been consolidating lately. Um, their business model is slightly threatened. They, they've always had a unique business model. And basically what they did is they would find a constraint. So five years ago, there was a constraint between Cushing, Oklahoma, and Houston. And so they know that you need transport there. And so they would go out and they would sign these long-term contractors with the producers saying, I know you need to get your oil from Cushing, Oklahoma, to Houston. Sign this contract where we move it for $8 a barrel, whatever, for 20 years. And then once they had enough people sign those contracts, they now use that as collateral to get a very low interest loan to actually build the pipeline. So they almost couldn't lose money. And the way the contracts were written were that if the upstream producer, even if they filed bankruptcy, the pipeline company still got its money. So it was, it was, it was foolproof, right, as long as they did the math and the financial due diligence. Well, there's a couple of court cases out there that haven't been ruled upon that may turn that financial model upside down. And basically it's a couple upstream operators that sign long-term contracts that are trying to get out of it during their bankruptcy proceedings. And if 
either one of those goes, it's going to put enough risk in the, the financial model for midstream companies that they're going to have to change their model. Unfortunately, if that happens, guess who's going to end up paying for that risk version? Us as a consumer. They're going to end up finding a different financial model, passing it on to their customers. Their customers are the refineries that produce the gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel and plastics that you use. So, you know, from everybody in the room, let's hope that doesn't happen. The consolidation thing has been happening lately. Um, there's, uh, if you ever look at a map of the U.S. with all the pipelines, you almost can't find bare ground. There's millions and millions of miles of pipelines and a bunch of small pipeline players. And now that we have this whole revolution of, especially around natural gas, converting natural gas into products, it makes sense for like ethylene crackers to start owning some of that supply chain, that infrastructure. So you s you're seeing ethylene crackers buy pipelines so they control the transport costs, but you're also seeing pipeline companies like Williams going, we have the infrastructure, let's make the end product. So now the pipeline company is building ethylene crackers. So it's like two opposite models, and they're in a race, and we'll see which one makes more sense. We had another question. You don't get another one for a little while. Okay. So uh, recently, um, you've been seeing some of the super major causes huge offenses uh, about environmental issues and stuff like that, especially with these huge active tankers. And I know your background, I think, is environmental design. Wildlife management. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's it. And uh, so I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit, open up a discussion about some of the big trends in oil and gas and environmental. Maybe make it a little more clear. You guys talk about it on the podcast a lot as to um, how the Trump campaign is, is attacking those issues. Bring it to politics, don't you know how much I try to stay away from it? <laughs> just, I know you guys uh, do a lot of you know research and you really uh, do a great job of presenting the facts and crunching the data. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, your opinion. So uh, we'll get into that. So let me kind of tell you an in-game story. Um, today is Thursday. So last Friday, I had a voicemail, and it was a Discovery Channel. And Discovery Channel said, hey, this is Laura with Discovery Channel. Uh, we're getting ready to do a series on um, in, um, the environmental actions, the, the pro-environmental actions that the oil and gas industry has done. And we heard you're the guy you need to talk to. So when it gets to the point where the Discovery Channel has taken notice that oil and gas is actually doing positive things to the environment, that's awesome, right? The problem with our industry is we never pat ourselves on the back. I, I don't want want our industry to go crazy and start making up stuff. But this industry does a lot of great things for the environment, but we never mention it. Remember all the Canadian wildfires that happened, was that three years ago and burned like 60% of the national forest? Do you know BP's employees um, volunteered and they went and planted 4,700 trees? Now, this wasn't BP doing it. This is BP's employees doing it. When BP found out what was happening, BP bought the trees. Um, but the employees just went and volunteered. I bet nobody in the room knows that. Um, you all know about a, re a Reese, um, Riggs to Reese program right here in Louisiana, right? So what happens is the State Wildlife and Fisheries Service works with the oil and gas companies, and they take these rigs, these production rigs, and they figure out what's the best way to do to make an artificial reef. Do you know the number of reef species in the Gulf, Co Gulf Coast of Louisiana has increased by 27% since that program started? You never hear that in the news. Um, so environmentally, so our, our industry is one of the only industries I know where every mid-level manager and above is measured on his impact to the environment. Health, safety, and environment, HS&E, is the major business driver in this industry. Um, We'll have a loss of containment incident on a, a rig, and they literally dropped a teaspoon of oil. Nobody else reports a teaspoon of oil going overboard somewhere. Um, it's, our industry is extremely environmentally responsible. Have we always been? No. When that movement started to change, was a lot of it done for marketing? Yeah. But now our industry believes in it. We, we want to have the least amount of impact on our environment. And in the case of when we do impact the environment, we do have, let's say, an oil spill, um, we go back and fix it. 
You go find any place in modern history where we've had an oil spill somewhere, and the environment's now cleaner than it was before. So when we have saltwater remediation, well, I mean, we just fix it. So you can engineer a fix to environment and make an impact. We don't like to make an impact, but when we do, we, we make sure we, we go back and take care of it. Um, you know, I know I, I speak to a lot of senior-level executives literally day-to-day in this industry, and I know it's in their hearts, and it's in their people's hearts to, to make sure that we invo- operate in an environmentally responsible way. Now, what's unfortunate is you have a lot of people that don't know our industry that have a decent audience on social media that like to talk about how environmentally unresponsive we are. And then you have a lot of people who won't do the research that believe that. So it's one of the big PR issues that we have in this industry. Think about fracking. How many of your friends that don't know oil and gas talk about fracking pollutant groundwater? But how many of them have you ever heard talk about um, farming pollutant groundwater? So the biggest pollution of groundwater in the U.S. in 2015 was agriculture, 619 different incidents. You don't hear that in the news. I don't hear anybody on Twitter talking about that where they can't find one incident of fracking ever doing it. So, and, you, and, you know, and, and if, if we do have an incident, we go fix it. So um, you know, my degree is in wildlife management. I got out of school. I want to save the planet. Um, I still want to save the planet, and, and so I'm in oil and gas. Does that answer your question? Yeah. We had another one. Yes, sir. Because you make money off this, you owe me half of it. <laughs> yeah, the oil sands are just expensive. If um, you don't know how that works, the oil is basically mixed with sand and it's heavy and it's cold. So you don't really drill for it. You mine it, right? Just like you mine any other mineral, and then you heat it up, or they heat it in the ground and they pump it out. And it's just an expensive, it's not a very efficient way. It's really very heavy, very high quality crude. That industry is dead until the technology comes back to make it more cost-effective. Um, there still will be operations there, especially companies like Shell, who figure out how to lower the cost from, I think they started as $280 a barrel to get it out the ground. They've dropped that down to 70 I mean, that's a big drop. They'll continue to play with it to see if they can come up with new technologies or new processes to drop that calcium low because that crude is so valuable. Um, the Shell play break-even points, it all depends on the operator. You can have a really good operator. This is the reason that Shell hasn't went shale, I pronounce it right, hasn't went global, is that there's not there's a science to it, a very good science, but there's also a bit of a magic to it. I've seen these guys, I've talked to these operators, and they have Frank. And Frank has been the drilling contractor for 37 years. And Frank can tell by the sound of the rig what's going on. He can look at the shavings coming up and he goes, we're in the pay zone and we're not. Pretty soon, the machines will replace Frank. But right now, they haven't. And that information that's in Frank's head, because he's done it for 30 years, is so valuable. And the Chinese can't steal that because it's in Frank's head. So they can't figure out how to do it themselves. So you can get a really good operator in an average play, and the break-even point's in the 40s. And I suspect that in the next decade, that's going to drop in the 30s, maybe even the 20s. You can get a bad operator in a prime acreage, and they can't make money at $80 a barrel. So it, it, it depends. Once again, it's the people. It depends on the people. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, and it's already happened. So you're seeing you're seeing a bunch of things. So not just recovery, you're looking at actual well design. So you're seeing much farther laterals, extended reach laterals. You're seeing uh, the science of figuring out where the preparations should be different in this play versus this play, even though they're in the same field. 
Um, you're looking at different well simulation techniques. Um, so what happens is if, if you would graph out production for all the fields, and not just the unconventional, but the conventional reservoirs we have, and if you would put it over time, you could see f spikes and valleys, and those spikes always coincide with a new technology on how to make that field more efficient. And so if you look at all the fields and if you graphed them all out and if you averaged them out, you're seeing that we're becoming much more efficient overall. It, conventionals, unconventionals, um, part of that is technology. Part of that is also new process and procedure. Um, you know, our ability to even drill horizontally accurately didn't exist 10 years ago. We didn't know where that bit was. Now we know exactly where that bit is. Now we're getting to the point where the machines are learning where the pay zone is and the machines are steering the bit instead of a person do it. And the machine doesn't care if his girlfriend got mad at it that morning or it had a bad day or it stayed out drinking tonight. You know, it works perfectly all the time. And that's, that's where that is going, which just is going to lower the cost and draw more efficiencies. Yes, sir. So you mentioned earlier on how, like, uh, natural gas reserves and other types of, uh, you know, resources in, like, developing countries can help them develop, like, you know, uh, infrastructure, like, for electricity and stuff. How would you say that, like, for example, American companies should navigate, like, foreign regulations and, like, more economic like, obstacles, legal obstacles to operating in other countries? It's a mess. If you go work for one of the big national, one of the majors, they don't have to be a super major. You go work for Anadarko. Every country they operate has different rules and regulations, and somebody at Anadarko has to use that information and figure out if the venture they're getting ready into is worth it, is it profitable. And every country is different. And you see countries do silly stuff. So Brazil, when they made those deep salt discoveries, I mean, I'm a big fan of Brazil. And it's like, oh, man, they, they're, they're going to lead Latin America, right? They're going to pull their people out of poverty. They're going to be the center of technology and innovation. And good old-fashioned human corruption just ruined that for them. And so when they started that, they required that everybody operate in their water form a joint venture with their nationalized oil company, Petrobras. Well, now nobody wants to work with them anymore. And so now they're changing the rules. And it makes me wonder what happened if they would have had those, the rules differently in the beginning. Would it have allowed that base of corruption to build up? Probably not. So, I mean, even the countries themselves have a lot of culpability on how they set up those rules and regulations. And then it changes. Um, think about things like cash repatriation. So if you operate in Nigeria, if you're Shell and you're in Nigeria, by law, a part of what you're paid in is in the local currency, the Naira. Well, the Naira is worth nothing, right? And it fluctuates so much that you can't really depend on it. So as quickly as possible, Shell wants to convert that to U.S. dollars. But when do you do that? Who makes the decision when the Naira is 1.1 or 1.2? That one percentage point different could be several million dollars. Now imagine doing that with every country that Shell, a company that Shell has to operate in every country. I mean, it's just... It's a huge mess. Once again, all this is being done with people. At some point in the very near future, it's going to be done with technology. When it's done with technology, it's going to be much more efficient. Once again, lowering costs and increasing profits to the oil and gas industry as a whole. Answer your question? Yeah. What was the first part I missed? Well, no, I'm saying that the last part that you said, mentioning how technology would ultimately make it more efficient, kind of streamline the whole process between countries. Yeah. That answers the question. Yeah. Okay. We had some questions over... You're raising your hand, you're waving at me. <laughs> so, during the kind of lowest lows of the downturn, we saw a lot of private equity capital flood in to the EMP space, especially in the Permian. And private equity's goal is clearly get in, make a return, get out. Do you see that as a potential problem with the producers at the Permian and that it doesn't necessarily have the longevity that a 40 or 50 year exploration process company might have? Want to answer that one? Say, 
say it one more time? <laughs> so, with private equity kind of taking a big share of yeah. the operational issue in what regard? In that, I mean, eventually they're going to have to spend all either through an IPO or whatever they do to get to exit, but they might not have the structure that is the long-term. So can I answer this a little bit and then you jump in? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So one of the problems during this downturn is exactly that. We had a bunch of Wall Street money in oil, in, in oil and gas, especially in North America, who don't understand oil and gas. All they wanted was a flip, right, a quick return. You know, dump $10 million, five years later, walk out with $35 million. And that's one of the reasons the downturn, this downturn was so bad because we had people that didn't understand how the industry actually works dumping money into it. So that's what caused all the rapid inflation. And then, of course, anytime you have the pendulum swing one way, it swings the other way. Um, so that was actually one of the problems. And this was the first time I've ever seen that much money, private equity money, and venture capital money come in oil and gas by people that don't know the industry. They just knew finance. So that was actually one of the problems. So kind of on the front end, that's already been a problem. That, that fixed itself because they all lost money. There's definitely not as much free money out there as there was then. Uh, the due diligence is a lot harder. Uh, I know guys who are starting EMPs right now who have experienced teams and they can't get the money. Uh, but the money still is out there. Uh, it really depends on what the business model is for the people who are actually launching the EMP because there's completely different business models. Just the same thing as if you're launching a startup. Is it an acquisition player? You kind of go IPO? Or do you want to run this until you die? Right? Hi. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and they all are. Um, and but the, actually, it was so funny on our ride up here as we were stuck in traffic in Baton Rouge for an hour. And we were, Jake and I were just talking about this. The problem with renewables is storage. And once somebody solves that, and there's a bunch of bright, smart people out there, and actually a pretty big company run by a guy named Musk that I think is, is headed that way, um, that's when renewables can really take off. The, the problem is, and if you don't know this, renewables tend to make more electricity than anybody can use and when they're at their peak and then at other part of their life cycle they aren't making any so you have to have a way to buffer that wind or solar is basically free right but once you and oil and gas you got to pay for you got to buy a lease now once you want to tap into it per btu a windmill is actually pretty expensive um but compared to an oil well but where the real kicker comes in is storage it's free to store oil and gas it's in the ground it's been there since the Pleistocene era whereas right now it's very expensive to store renewable energy but once somebody fixes that it's gonna take off like crazy the other thing is renewables are taken off in parts of the world that have a low need for consumption so I live in Sugarland Texas it's very hot maybe not as hot as it gets here but it's hot and so, you know, at the peak in the summer, I'm probably burning through 30 kilowatts a day of electricity. I got air conditioners, TVs, computers, blah, blah. In Vietnam, this poor farmer, all he needs is enough electricity is run a small refrigerator, an iPad, and, and maybe a radio. You can do that very easily with solar. Supplying what most of the U.S. and Europe is used to, 10, 15, 10, 20 kilowatts a day consistently, you can't yet do that with renewables. But once that energy storage thing gets fixed, you will be able to do it. And so... So all of the oil and gas industries, all the oil and gas companies I know that of any size, all have some very smart people and some money invested in renewables. 
a more of a micro level out in the actual oil patch. A lot of these oil wells have actually run by solar panels now, along with all the meters. It's just more efficient that way. Yeah. Yes, sir. So if you think about the history of mankind, we've always had a mix in our energy. We started with biofuels, right? We started burning wood, cook food and keep warm, keep the saber-toothed tigers away. And as we go through time, that mix continuously changed. Renewals will, will play more and more of a part for fuel, especially if we get a battery breakthrough technology. But hydrocarbons are so important to our modern industrial lifestyle as far as, as products um, that that needs just going up. Um, all these ethylene crackers, these, these aren't built for the U.S. We have, we have plenty of ethylene. We actually think there's going to be a global ethylene shortage. It's the emerging economies. It's China, right, who right now lives an agrarian lifestyle. You have a family that has 12 kids because they need a workforce, and they grow food and they raise pigs to feed themselves. The next generation, that family is going to be living in the city, and they need Tupperware, right? They don't need it now. Where is that going to come from? Well, I'm telling you where it's going to come from. It's going to come from the ethylene crackers here in the U.S. We see that emerging market coming, and we're ahead of it. Um, so we may use less oil and gas for fuel, but there'll always be a need for it because the the chemical the pet the value of the petrochemicals from from hydrocarbons is just Im immensely vast. You can make plastics from other things; it costs you a hundred times as much. And, it, and it, there's no there's no technology that could change the simple physics of a hydrocarbon molecule. That kind of brings me to a question I have. So you talk about how we're increasing our uses, but just in a different way. What kind of industry shifts? And once again, I have no crystal ball. I think this is a really a great time to be alive, right? You can see a lot of manufacturing jobs come back to the U.S. because the cost of manufacturing is going to be so much cheaper because we can make electricity cheaper than anybody else on the planet. And we have the raw petrochemicals, the feedstock you need to make iPhones and uh, OLD displays and, you know, you know pressure sensors. We, we have all of it. Um, and we can make it for the rest of the world. You, I think you can see the U.S., especially from a technology point of view, have a renaissance. And, and become a high-tech manufacturer again. Um, you can see changes in the way um, basic things work. So transportation, you know, look at what Uber's done. I mean, it's cr crazy, and it's cool. It's great stuff, right? It's disrupted the whole taxi industry. I love Uber. Jake and I were just talking about it. It keeps you from getting in trouble with the police if you had a drink or two, right? You just call Uber, and it's like 10 bucks. Um, so I think you can see um, industries like aviation be upset about that. Um, you know, traditionally, you you buy assets if you're an airline company, uh, which are airplanes, you have to run them almost 24-7. You'd be, you'd be actually surprised how small the fleet is at, at a major airline because they run them 24-7. And it's a logistical dance. And if one of those dominoes falls out of play, they start losing money. Well, what happens, because their biggest cost is jet fuel. What happens when you get jet fuel for a third of what you're getting now? Well, the airline's going to start competing again. You may start having competitions where, you, hey, we'll give you a ticket for 80. Well, we'll give you a ticket for 30. We'll give you a ticket for 20. I think that's a fundamentally change the airline industry. So it's all good stuff. Now, anytime there's change, people get scared. Um, but if you're open-minded and kind of back up, anytime there's change, there's also tons of opportunity, which is what I'm very excited about. No. No, yeah, go ahead. Um, so you talked about how bringing, like, kind of production back to the United States is so elusive. Do you think, like, this administration has come in at a good time or almost too early? Like, do you think we're ready to have that kind of manufacturing? Sorry, not to get... 
No, 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 no. I actually don't mind talking politics. Just the funny thing about politics is, is is people will have it's almost like a religious experience, right? It's almost like faith. Like no matter what the facts are, they're gonna believe what they want to believe, and it's it's ends up being a waste of time conversation. I don't mind talking politics. Um, that's 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 a good question. Ask me that again. Um, so you talk about how you think manufacturing will right. So the, the problem with all administrations, not just the current administration, is there's a difference in what they say and what they do. And you always have to try to figure out what that difference is. And one of the things, um, just to be quite blunt, that, I'm, um, that bothers me a lot, so I'm on the board of directors of the American Petroleum Institute, the Houston chapter API. I'm the director of public relations. And we're the second biggest lobby group in the U.S., right? We represent the rights of the oil and gas industry to Congress. And our head lobbyist, who's a Democrat, which just cracks me up, he's a great guy, I spent about three hours with him talking. And he told me, he goes, Mark, he goes, you know, I've been a lobbyist for almost 30 years. I spent a lot of time uh, in Washington. And since social media has taken off in the last six or seven years, he goes, I've seen a change that scares me. I go, what's going on? He goes, neither side want to do anything anymore. doesn't matter what side. He goes, they realize that if they don't fix a problem by the use of social media, when it's time to get reelected, they can use social media to get reelected again on that same problem. It's easier for them to keep their jobs. And that scares me. I mean, do we have politicians that don't want to get anything accomplished? That's scary. This current administration, if you look who he's picked for his cabinet, I think he's picked the A-team. Um, I wish he would shut up. I, I, I just, just don't say anything. But um, the people that he's picked, I think, are some of the best people in the world. Um, I'm hoping that we see some fundamental good changes for the U.S. happen with this administration. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that this administration does a lot of stuff that it says it's going to do. Which, regardless of what side you're on politically, if it's if it's valuable, if it's useful, if it benefits people, you can't help but want to support it. Um, and I hope it continues. Um, I, I, you know, I gotta wait and see. I gotta wait and see if they do what they say they're gonna do. Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. So uh, you mentioned that the policy is moving like a lot of times. Like when people get Yeah, so. Yeah, no, I, so I agree with you. And it's in this downturn has magnified that response. And what happens, we always throw money at the problem. So we have a downturn. I'm Slumber J. I lay off all my wireline operators, right? Business comes back. Well, a wireline operator should make 70000 a year. I'll pay ninety. Well, and Baker Hughes goes, well, I'll pay 100 Pretty soon you have a guy that should be making $70,000 a year, making 200000 a year. Well, guess what happens when the next downturn comes? He's the first we let go. And this downturn's different. So I told you that all the old guys aren't coming back, which is a first. I've never seen that before. All of the young people that enter the industry, there's downturn that got let go, they're not coming back either. They found jobs somewhere else. They got burned. So our industry as a whole is aware of this. Talent management is, is – so my consulting company, Modal Point, we do this survey every year where I ask the same about 900 people globally in all aspects of the industry. When you look at your business and you look forward for five years, what's the thing you're worried about the most? And this year, even there's downturn, it's talent, it's future talent. So our industry is aware of it. They're aware that we're going to have to retain talent. Um, they're aware there's not enough talent in it. What I think is going to happen is that rapid 
spike and then downfall, spike and downfall, I think is going to be minimized with technology. Um, it will still happen because it's a commodities market, but I think the only solution to that that works is the flexible workforce where you don't go work for Exxon, right? You're, you're a project manager. You do projects for Anadarko and you do projects for Devon Energy and for Exxon. That way, if Exxon wants to lay off, they can't, right? You s and, and so I think that's why that flexible workforce is going to be forced upon the industry. There's not enough talent, and the only way we can keep people in the industry that wants to be happy is make sure they have job security. And the only way I see that job security is the flexible workforce. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but the industry is aware that's a problem, and they have to figure it out. But can you explain how flexible, flexible workforce uh, Yeah, so let's say you're, you're, I don't know, let's say you're a project manager. Um, traditionally, you'd go work for somebody like FMC Technologies, and you'd manage their subsea projects. And if FMC was hurting enough and you were not one of the top performers, they would lay you off, even though you were doing a good job. I think what's going to happen in the future is that you will be a project manager that FMC will hire, not as an employee, as a contractor. And, and those, those legal, legal, that legal arrangement, legal relationship with you may change because you want things like benefits and insurance, which FMC is going to offer you. But I think what's going to happen is that you're going to work for several companies doing project management. Because uh, uh, you know, doing a project, a subsea field project for uh, Cameron is really not much different than doing one for Acker, which is really not different than one doing FMC. But by working for several different companies, number one, each one of them can use you as they need you instead of having the expense of you as an employee, right? So they use you on demand. But from you, it's more job secure. They can't lay you off. You've got five companies that you're working for. So I just think that's the natural progression. Um, you're seeing that with some highly sought-after developer talent in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think you can see the same thing in the oil and gas. And I think the oil and gas industry has no choice. And I think that's going to be the only solution to keep that from happening. Um, and I think it's, it's just going to be like it's going to be a – a new change that is just beneficial to everybody. I mean, how cool would it be that you work when you want? As long as you get your job done and you get paid and you're not worried about being laid off. I, I mean, you would love that, right? Um, at the same time, how cool would it be for the companies to only pay you when you're doing work for them? I mean, it's it just to me, it seems like a win-win situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. not to make your life easier. So we keep talking about driving efficiencies. I don't know, or let me just tell you, this industry is crazily inefficient in certain things. So we'll go, we'll go upstream. Gulf of Mexico, Anadarko will have a field in this block. Every one of those trees are built to Anadarko specs. Now that tree, each one of those trees may be a million dollars. They may have 30 of them in that field. Right next to it, same field is Exxon with 30 trees. They're built completely different to Exxon specs. Even the rigs, so you get two... Um, you know, noble drilling rigs, which are supposed to be sister ships, identical built in the port, they're still different. One of them has bow thrusters made by Rolls-Royce, one of them doesn't. And so all those inefficiencies drive up costs. It's crazy. It'd be like somebody hand-building your car, right? Instead of somebody just stamping out wheels and engines, it's like somebody hand I mean, your car, car costs $10 million. That's how we run our industry, especially upstream. So I think this long-term hydrocarbon-abundant world is going to force efficiencies. And not only do I think it, the end of 20. 16, all the major operators in the world signed a, a memorandum of understate, under, understanding to start working on standardization so they see it as well as a cost thing. So I think inadvertently for you, once we get there, then it will be easy for you to do a job here, 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 because it will all be standardized. But the driver for that is efficiencies in lowering costs, not to make your job easier. But the cool thing is if you're an engineer and you start working in that standardized world, you can now do much better engineering 
right? You don't have to worry about safety factors because you know exactly where the safety factors are built in. So if you're an engineer, it's like a cool place to be because you get to do some really cool stuff instead of just trying to make it work. scientist <laughs> no seriously um, yeah yeah it's um no matter what your degree is in no matter what you want to do learn something about data science our industry as a whole is going there some parts are there, are there any geologists here do you have a geology program yeah you need to learn data science the machine in your lifetime will be better than you as a geologist I, I, I just hate to tell you that but let me tell you what's in huge demand right now in huge demand. All these tech companies in Silicon Valley that have the big data analytics, that have the machine learning, that are able to do geology better geologists, what they need is in your head, and they don't have that. So there's a big shortage right now of geologists to go work for the tech companies so they can teach the machines how to be a geologist. Now that's going to be a short term, that's going to be a five or eight year run, but those guys are getting crazy money. I mean, crazy money. But if you learn data science, now you're valuable, right? Now you can help teach the machines. And no matter what your degree program is in, at least pick up a class in it, right? That, that's going to be the big, biggest differentiator. Even if you're in HR, that's going to be a big data play too, right? How much talent do you have? Where are the gaps now? Do you know that in real time? No company knows that right now, right? You know, everybody has a different skill set that needs improvement. How cool to be if you run a company as big as Chevron to know that Jenny over here, who's an engineer, she needs better presentation skills. And Bob, who's also an engineer doing the same work, well, he needs more work on his personal uh, communications. And if you need that across your whole company, man, think of the power to, of, of individual training to bring your people up. I mean, if Chevron did something like that, they'd blow by Exxon so quick it wouldn't happen. Now, they're not there yet, but that's all data science. And I think that, I think, Jake, you're absolutely right. It's anything. Go, go pick up at least a class in it. Yeah. Yes, sir. a bunch of things so my wife and i went and test drove teslas two weeks ago nice really nice car the cool thing about a tesla is you don't think of it as an electric car it's just a really nice car that just happens to be electric i like sporty cars not sports cars but sporty cars the normal tesla weighs five thousand pounds the fastest one weighs six thousand pounds that's almost three times as much as my infinity weighs and it's because of the weight of the battery so weight is a big one the other thing is that people don't understand is my internal combustion engine my infinity the waste products, it gets rid of, right? It dumps it in the air. And because of catalytic converters and lean burn technology, it's basically water and carbon dioxide. You all know that if we removed all the cars in the U.S. like you had a magic wand and you remove them all right now, you would drop out air pollution by 1%. That's how clean our cars run now. My Infiniti at 80 miles an hour puts out 90% less emissions than my 1965 Mustang did cut off in the garage. We've gotten really good with clean burn cars. Anyway. The problem with electric cars, it brings its waste materials with it. As you use that battery, it, the chemical co uh, composition, that battery change, and that's the waste products. You have to carry it with it. So it's, it's not really efficient. 
you know, imagine if you had to carry all your exhaust with you in your car. How it's, it's that same thing. So weight's a big one. Energy density's another one. We, and cost is another one. Lithium-ion batteries, which are the best that we have right now, are very expensive for the amount of kilowatts you get out of them. So we need a breakthrough. And there's some very smart people out there working on it. I think, and, and Elon Musk, I, I, I tell him, Jake, on the way up here, I have a love-hate relationship with him because um, he's doing some really cool stuff. I mean, just really cool stuff. If you look at SpaceX, I, I mean, I, it brings tears to my eye to watch that thing land itself, right? It runs on kerosene, which comes from the oil and gas industry. And Elon Musk hates the oil and gas industry, but it powers his business. 90% of what goes into Tesla was comes from oil and gas. 100% of everything transported to Tesla comes from oil and gas. The electricity in the U.S. that runs this car comes from the oil and gas industry. Um, but there's, I think that's where Elon Musk is going. I don't think he's built a car company or a space company or a battery company or a solar tile company. I think his ultimate goal is to be an energy storage company. And I think he's using the car company to make sure that his shareholder value is there so that he has enough cash to actually dabble in that and figure it out. I, and I, I, think, I think he's probably going to solve it before anybody else does. And if he does, he's going to be a gazillionaire. You know? um, but we need a breakthrough in battery technology. It's the weight and it's the cost. Hey, Jake, we're slowly losing people. You think we're getting bored? <laughs> yes, sir. Do you have a, a point of view on climate change? What position do you think the oil and gas industry should take relative to that? Okay, yeah. I have a very, uh, very, actually very solid scientific-based view on climate change. Climate change is real. So um, we've had, what, in human history, six ice ages? All right, what is an ice age? It's a period of global cooling, right? Look outside. You see any glaciers? No. So by default, we're in a period of global warming. That pendulum swings. You go from ice age to global warming, ice age to global warming. It's just natural fluctuations. The question is, has man and activity sped up that cycle? Um, it's been much hotter. You know, the Jurassic, the Pleistocene era, much hotter, much warmer. Carbon dioxide, 4% of global warming. Water vapor is 85%. Why are we even talking CO2? CO2 right now is 300, 400 parts per million. In our past, it's been as high as 5,000 parts per million before mankind existed. The problem with the weather is everything affects the weather. Literally, the whole thing about the butterfly's wing beat actually makes an impact on the weather. Jake and I were talking about this a while back. Wind farms, Texas, we're the number one wind generating state, and it's cool. And, and, and we do it all for profit. It's not government subsidized. What does a windmill do? A windmill pulls energy out of the air and converts it to mechanical force. You're changing the weather with a windmill. You're pulling energy out of the air. Weather is the transfer of energy based upon temperature differential. How is the windmills affecting climate? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? So right now, we do not have enough data. We need to have another 50 years of data before we can say one way or the other whether man's activity is affecting the pendulum swing of, of climate change. Now, here's the other thing. We tend to go about every 100 or 120,000 years we have an ice age, right? Pretty regular. We've been 109,000 years now with no ice age. What happens if we have an ice age coming and we inadvertently as a species reduce the greenhouse effect? We're going to accelerate the ice age. So here in New Orleans, which would affect your lifestyle more? Two degrees warmer in the summer or a mile of ice on your house? It, it bothers me that we have a whole population that don't understand the science behind what's really going on. And, and, and I do. Um, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and they get, once again, it's almost like a religious experience. I ask them if they know the difference between weather and climate, or can they name any of the nine cloud types, or do they understand any of the laws of thermodynamics? And they say no, but then they're convinced that man-made global warming. It's like, you don't even understand the science of what you're trying to talk about. Um, the oil and gas industry has played a big PR game in that. 
Um, so Rex Tillerson, our new Secretary of State, I could not believe he had the, um, I almost used the word I want to use, I couldn't believe he had the courage or the, to do this, but a uh, couple shareholder meetings ago, two years ago, he said, even if there is climate change, we're ExxonMobil, we're engineers, we'll engineer a solution around it. This city is an engineered solution to climate change. Right? You live in a hole in the ground that's protected by pumps and levees. That's engineers protecting you from rising sea levels. The sea levels have been rising for 5,000 years now, right? Um, so the oil and gas industry has a PR part of it. <laughs> what is the reality of our industry? The, the environmental scientists in the major oil and gas companies right now are taking a wait-and-see attitude, which is different than what their PR and marketing department are. PR and marketing department are jumping off, you know, really fast upon climate change, let's mitigate it. Do those people believe in it? Maybe. Does, do the team of client scientists at Chevron believe in it? No. They know there's not enough data yet. And the bad thing is you have, you have a lot of um, mathematical models out there showing that man -made, man's activities increase in the rate of global warming. The problem with that is the math mo mathematical model is a hypothesis that they go out and gather the data to support the hypothesis. So it's flawed from its very inception. It would be sort of like if I told you that 91% of all child molesters had change in their pocket, which is actually a true statistic. So does that mean that if any of y'all have change in your pocket, you're a child molester? No, right? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the hypothesis and I'm gathering only the data that supports that. And that's the problem with the mathematical models. And then the problem is with the execution. So the same guys that can't tell you what the weather's gonna be accurately two weeks from now or to tell you what it's gonna be like 10,000 years from now, how does that make any sense? So we need more real data. And, the, and, what's, and what's hurting this discussion around climate change is it's become such an emotional issue that so many people are convinced they know the right answer to and they don't understand the basic science. And it worries me. I've actually talked to, so one of the founders of Greenpeace, um, he's, he's left, right? He came out and said, you know what? I cannot support this man-made global warming thing. It's not right. It's people making money off of it, and I don't support it. And they kicked him out of Greenpeace. Um, the head of NOAA. I had a discussion at API, and he has the mathematical model showing that the opposite has happened, that we're getting ready to hit the peak of global warming and start into a global cooling. How many people were alive in the 80s? I know I was. Yeah, if you research global cooling in the 80s, if you Google it, you'll see an article in Time magazine where they show in glaciers. The climate, the climate scientists at that time in the 80s were predicting a massive global cooling would enter another ice age. Well, these are the same guys now that say global warming, right? So it's just, it's just a mess, and, and nobody understands the science um, but to get back to your question, the industry, the, the scientists in the industry are taking a wait-and-see attitude. The kind of cool thing is um, because they're focused on this, they're gathering lots of data, um, and we now have the ability to crunch all that data. So when they come to an answer, they'll be able to support it 100% whether man-made activities is helping it speed up or slowing it down. The other thing is our air and water pollution peaked in 1977. Every year our air and water pollution gets less and less. Um, clean burn technology, different light bulbs, we're switching from coal to natural gas. So here in Europe, we're not the polluters anymore. We're, we went through our industrial revolution. We're over the pump. We're going down. The problem is the emerging economy, China. Um, I was in Beijing three years ago. You cannot breathe because of coal-fired plants, and they have no clean burn coal technology. So then you get to the whole ethical question. Do we make China do that? I mean, nobody made us do it. Europe, nobody made Europe do it. Or do we make China continue to be the global polluter until it gets over its total industrial revolution, right? And then what do we do with India or Vietnam? I mean, it's, it's problem that needs to be solved by scientists right now it's, it's just uh, it's a, an opinion belief system thing that doesn't have a whole bunch of science in it. That, I, I know it's all over the place. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> 
as normal people, we 